Welcome to Sojourner Truth. Thank you for staying with us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. Today, the Bishop William Barber, Joint Coordinator of the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival, joins us to discuss the anti-poverty efforts of the Poor People's Campaign as well as a congressional resolution which calls for the third reconstruction and an upcoming virtual march on Washington. And as we go live on the air, President Biden and Russian President Vladimir Putin are meeting. This follows President Biden's trip to Europe for a meeting of the world's Western powers called the G7. We discuss what came out of the summit and its wider implications, as well as what this all pretends for the United States and the world in terms of relations with what are still considered to be the world's superpowers, the United States, Russia, and China. Our guest is Dr. Gerald Horn. And starting July 15th, families with children 17 years old and younger will start getting child tax credit payments on a monthly basis. You'll start getting a check from the U.S. government. Our guest is Peggy O'Mara, former editor of Mothering Magazine. We live in a global world. We're all interrelated. So on Sojourner Truth, we work to bring directly to you news and views on local, national, and international policies and stories that affect us all. And we draw out how those of us most impacted, women, communities of color, and other communities are responding. We also discuss the interrelationship between art and politics. Now for our news headlines. For Pacifica Radio... I'm Eileen Alfandari. President Biden and his Russian counterpart Vladimir Putin are in the midst of hours of face-to-face talks at a lakeside Geneva mansion. The highly anticipated summit comes at a low point in relations between the two nations. Their Swiss host seemed to remind the two that peace between the world's largest nuclear weapons powers has global implications. I would like to welcome you to Geneva, the city of peace. It is an honor and a pleasure for Switzerland to host you here for this summit and, in accordance with its tradition of good officers, promote dialogue and mutual understanding. I wish you both presidents a fruitful dialogue in the interest of your two countries and the world. Biden and Putin are first holding a meeting joined only by Secretary of State Antony Blinken and Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov. Each side has a translator. The meeting will then expand to include five senior aides on each side. After their meeting concludes, Putin is scheduled to hold a solo news conference with Biden following suit. Israel carried out a series of airstrikes in the Gaza Strip. They were the first such attack since a shaky ceasefire ended a war with Hamas last month. No reported Palestinian casualties in today's attack. The Israeli strikes followed Gaza-based Palestinians launching incendiary balloons that caused at least 10 fires in southern Israel. Palestinians launched the balloons after hundreds of right-wing Israeli ultranationalists staged a provocative march through occupied East Jerusalem, some of them chanting, Death to Arabs. Israeli police attacked Palestinian counter-protesters with rubber-coated steel bullets and made arrests. 
The march posed a test for Israel's fragile new government, as well as the tenuous truce that ended last month's 11-day war between Israel and Hamas. Mansour Abbas, whose Ram party is the first Arab faction to join an Israeli governing coalition, said the march was an attempt to set the region on fire for political aims with the intention of undermining the new government. Democratic leaders are laying the groundwork for a go-it-alone approach on President Biden's infrastructure plan, even as the White House continues negotiating with Republicans on a scaled-back $1 trillion proposal. A top White House advisor assured House Democrats during a closed-door session that there would be a fresh assessment by next week on where the talks stand with Republicans. But Democratic Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer announced he's moving ahead. He's set to huddle privately with the Senate Budget Committee, led by Bernie Sanders, to prepare for July votes on passing the $1.7 trillion American Jobs Plan and the $1.8 trillion American Families Plan. They'll discuss using the reconciliation process, which would allow Senate passage by a simple majority. Two Senate Democrats warned yesterday they will not agree to a plan that leaves out climate infrastructure. Christina Honestead reports. Republicans say climate action and human services are not infrastructure. But some Democrats are signaling opposition to any infrastructure package that doesn't address climate change, like Massachusetts Senator Ed Markey. This is as clear as day. No climate, no deal. We need to move forward with 50 Democratic votes now that the Republicans have shown us they are not serious about creating clean energy jobs, jump-starting a clean energy revolution. Markey isn't alone. He's joining a growing chorus of Democrats who want to see investments and strategies to fight climate change. For electric vehicle charging stations, money to bolster communities' response to harsh weather conditions, and funds for public transit. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer says he's taking steps to bypass the need for Republican votes as soon as July. I'm Christina Onestead. California residents may be asked to reduce electricity use this week to avert rolling blackouts amid a heat wave that threatens to strain the state's power grid. The California Independent System operator says it should have enough electricity to meet demand and avoid power outages. But it says if wildfires that burn transmission lines break out or there are other unexpected problems, grid managers could call the first so-called flex alert of the year asking for voluntary cuts in electricity use. Triple-digit temperatures are expected across California and much of the West this week. The U.S. Senate has passed a bill that would make June 19th, Juneteenth, a federal holiday commemorating the end of slavery. Juneteenth commemorates when the last enslaved African Americans learned they were free. Union soldiers brought them the news in Texas two years after the Emancipation Proclamation. Juneteenth is a paid holiday for state workers in Texas, New York, Virginia, and Washington. I'm Eileen Alfandari for Pacifica Radio. And this is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. Between June 11th to June 13th, the heads of states of some of the most powerful nations on the planet met for the annual Group of Seven Summit. The leaders of Canada, France, Germany, Italy, Japan, the United 
Kingdom and the United States, including President Joe Biden, met in Cornwall, England. The heads of states of Australia, India, South Korea, and South Africa were also in attendance um, as guests. The G7 agenda included developing a response to the COVID-19 pandemic and climate change. The G7 countries reportedly agreed to pledge one billion uh, vaccines to other countries. They also pledged to reach net zero emissions by 2050. Another topic of discussion was what they referred to as an international economic cooperation. In a challenge to China's Belt and Road Initiative, a global infrastructure development project spanning 70 countries um, was launched. The G7 countries launched the Build Back Better World Initiative, a plan to fund the infrastructural developments in the global south. The U.S. and the European Union also struck a deal to end the dispute over subsidies to rival plane makers Boeing and Airbus and phase out billions of dollars in punitive tariffs. Both sides have agreed on a five-year deal to suspend the tariffs at the center of the dispute. One clear message from the summit is that China has been acknowledged as an economic giant with the resources to establish itself as the world's preeminent power. In other words, China is seen as a so-named threat to the United States and Western domination. Russia has basically been demoted to the number two threat. European countries were cautious in their approach as to how much to push and punish China, given the economic dependency on China for their businesses. They were much more worried about Russia, whom they considered to be a neighbor, while China, they see China as a neighbor to the United States and of less concern to them. In an opinion piece published in the Washington Post, President Biden said, quote, the United States must lead the world from a position of strength when confronting the harmful activities of the governments of China and Russia. In the article, President Biden urged the major democracies to offer a quote-unquote high standard alternative to China in supporting global development. The grassroots environmental movement has also expressed skepticism over the climate solutions being proposed by the G7. Over the weekend of the summit, hundreds of protesters showed up in Cornwall to demand real climate solutions and systemic changes, not what they call false solutions to the climate crisis. Extinction Rebellion staged a nonviolent march targeting what they describe as the government's greenwashing of the climate and ecological emergency. And as we go on the air, President Joe Biden and Russian President Vladimir Putin have begun their highly anticipated meeting. The presidents are meeting in Geneva. Let's go to a clip now from Bloomberg um, in the lead up to these talks. What are expectations then for this much anticipated meeting? Well, Anna, good morning. So the meeting is expected to last four to five hours. It's going to start off uh, later this morning, local time here in Geneva, uh, in an impressive structure from the 18th century, just uh, very close by to our vantage point called Villa Lagrange. And you think about some of the big U.S.-Russia summits over the last seven decades, 
Most of them have been very important to the world. A lot of them were historic milestones along the lines of Gorbachev and Reagan in 1985. But going into this, well, it's uh, not that uh, big a set of expectations. Uh, both sides described the relationship as the ten most tense it's been in years. Uh, from the Russian side, there's an eagerness to not allow a further deterioration in relations. They see a need to sit down and have this conversation in person. Uh, on the U.S. side, the, the list is much more comprehensive. Think along the lines of the ransomware attacks, the uh, tensions over the Ukraine joining NATO, and, of course, the heavy hand on the domestic opposition in Russia. Uh, of course, uh, the key name there, Alexei Navalny. Uh, outcomes? Well, there's not likely to be any strategic friendship here. There is unlikely to be any nuclear breakthrough. I mean, let's face it, these things take years to put together. Uh, possibly uh, a re restoration of diplomatic ties that would allow some of the consular services to become operational again, which is very important for investors and for business, guys. Good morning, Youssef. Obviously, the optics of this meeting are being handled very carefully. Why is there going to be no joint press conference at the end? So, Mark, uh, when I flew in a, a few hours ago, uh, it was a fascinating sight to see sort of the Russian planes stacked and the American, American planes stacked at uh, Geneva Airport. And it took us, uh, you know, quite a few minutes to, to find our slot. But bear in mind that as we begin to count down to the beginning of these discussions, uh, the U.S. side is particularly worried that Mr. Biden is coming off the back of an eight-day whirlwind tour uh, with a lot of uh, other leaders. Uh, he's going to be tired. He's 10 years older than Mr. Putin. So uh, they did not want to give the Russian side the opportunity to exploit any gaffes uh, that, of course, uh, Mr. Putin is going to be focusing on. Plenty of punches have been thrown in the run-up from both sides, uh, with the U.S. president agreeing with the characterization uh, that uh, Mr. Putin is a killer. That's in an interview with a U.S. broadcaster. And Mr. Putin, uh, again, in another interview, reacted to that and said, well, it takes one to know one. Either way, though, there's going to be uh, quite a bit of focus on trying to create something more predictable and in what Putin would describe as less colorful than Trump. Right. And uh, that was from Bloomberg. And President Biden and Russian President Vladimir Putin meeting right now. Uh, topics for discussion are said to include cybersecurity, nuclear development and bilateral relations, among other topics. And tensions between both leaders are quite high. President Biden earlier this year called President Putin a killer and branded him as an unrepentant autocrat. But while in Europe, President Biden is being criticized by Republicans in the United States for saying that Putin was a quote-unquote worthy adversary. Meanwhile, Vladimir Putin has rejected all knowledge of alleged hacking and ransomware attacks against the U.S. government, private businesses, and vital infrastructure. President Biden said the goal of the summit is to test whether Putin is willing to agree to a more stable and predictable relationship with the United States. On Tuesday, President Biden issued a warning to Putin in which he claimed that the death of jailed Russian opposition leader uh, um, Alexei Navalny, who has said he was poisoned by Russian intelligence, would hurt Russia's relationships with the rest of the world. 
uh, Russia's government has denied playing a role in any such poisoning. One wonders what Putin will have to say to President Biden about the uptick of racial violence in the United States and other challenges confronting the Biden administration. All eyes are on this important meeting between the world's largest um, superpowers. Well, at least the largest nuclear powers, as far as we know, here to break all of this down for us and to give us some analysis and his views. We'd like to welcome back Dr. Gerald Horn, the Morse Professor of History and African-American Studies at the University of Houston. He's written more than 30 books. His most recently published book is The Bittersweet Science, Racism, Racketeering, and the Political Economy of Boxing. He's also the author of The Dawning of the Apocalypse, The Roots of Slavery, White Supremacy, Settler Colonialism, and Capitalism in the Long 16th Century. Dr. Horn, welcome. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, so, Dr. Horn, um, first, let us actually start with what is happening now. Um, following the meeting of the Group of Seven, we will go back to the G7 meeting and what came out of it. Uh, but this meeting happening now with uh, Vladimir uh, Putin and uh, President Biden. Uh, there's a lot of analysis of what might or might not come out of it. Politico has an article entitled that um, Putin has won just because Biden showed up. Of course, there's no joint. I'll tell you the whole story after uh, following it. So uh, apparently the Biden people concerned about any gaffes that President Biden may take. Give us your thoughts on this um, really mini summit between Biden and Putin. Dr. Horn. Well, although Washington is not going to admit it, in some ways, the light of the Putin holds the Trump card, pardon the expression. What I mean is, is that the non-too-subtle and non-too-hidden agenda is for Washington to woo Moscow into its corner with regard to this all-encompassing front against the People's Republic of China. This will not be a simple task to accomplish. Indeed, it might be impossible to accomplish. But Moscow will use that leverage in order to countervail some of Washington's initiatives. Uh, on the other hand, uh, Moscow does have some disadvantages. I think one of the most important meetings that took place during this whirlwind tour by Mr. Biden was the meeting with the Turkish president, uh, Mr. Erdogan, because Mr. Erdogan and the Turks are quite supportive of uh, Moscow's antagonists in Kiev, speaking of Ukraine, keep in mind as well that Moscow and Turkey crossed swords in the Azerbaijan-Armenia uh, conflict with Russia supporting Armenia and Turkey supporting their so-called Muslim brothers in Azerbaijan. And, of course, uh, Turkey uh, won out. And then there's Syria, where they're not on the same page as well. And given the fact that going back decades, if not centuries, there's been a historic antagonism uh, between Moscow and Ankara, oftentimes uh, manifested on a religious basis, that is to say, Christian Moscow versus Muslim Turkey, I think it's possible for Turkey to be wielded as a cudgel against Moscow, and I'm sure that that is what Washington has in mind. 
Right. Well, we'll see all of what uh, comes out of it uh, there. And uh, you're quite right in terms of what the, the relationship with, with Turkey, uh, a lot at play right here. But also, Dr. Horn, given the, the G7 meeting, it used to be the G8, uh, when Russia was part of it, was invited to it, but Russia got kicked out after the incident with the, with the Ukraine. Um, but now, just in terms of what came out of the G7 uh, summit. What jumps out at you? Well, what jumps out at me with regard to the G7, of course, uh, on the surface, there are the four Cs, climate, COVID, cyber. But the fourth C is really what stands out, and that's China. Uh, once again, the ball game right now is developing an all-encompassing front against China. But there is a split, as you know, within the... EU or within the European members of the G7, the Germans are trading uh, with China. It's China. Uh, it's China's uh, major trading. It's the major trading partner uh, of the uh, Federal Republic of Germany. They sell many Volkswagens and BMWs there. Uh, at the same time, uh, you saw that President Macron was looking rather askance at this idea of focusing like a laser beam on China because he wonders how China is part of the North Atlantic, which, of course, it is not. And then there are further strains introduced with, the, with regard to the EU, because many of the former socialist regimes in Eastern Europe, the Baltic Republics, Poland, to cite just a few, are very much concerned that a focus on China will lead to a reduction of a focus on Russia, which they see as their major so-called threat or antagonist. And so given these rifts, it's not clear to me, at least, whether the United States will be able to knock together this all-China, this anti-China front. And in any case, there's a fundamental contradiction in, in the U.S. strategy towards China, because the United States still borrows tremendously from China. And so you have the spectacle of this so-called superpower uh, borrowing from China in order to try to gain capital to weaken China. Uh, that seems to me to be an untenable uh, process and project. At the same time, China, too, has certain weaknesses that Washington will play upon. You already see this unfolding. Recall that as a result of the anti-Soviet deal that China brokered with Washington in the 1970s and 1980s, China actually backed Washington's uh, quagmire in Afghanistan against the Soviet Union, which finally drove out the Soviet Union in the late 1980s. But in helping to stoke religious zealotry in Afghanistan, it had blowback in western China amongst the Uyghurs and Xinjiang. And, of course, we now hear these stories, these lurid stories, about an alleged genocide unfolding against the Uyghurs. And then at the same time, in order to get in the good graces of Washington during the Cold War with Moscow, China, after Washington was ignominiously evicted from Vietnam, then waged its own war on Vietnam. And now, despite the fact that they are alleged communist allies, speaking in so-called communist Vietnam and so-called communist China, the Vietnamese are very wary and leery of China, and Washington plays to, plans to play on that contradiction. So China, too, has some liabilities it's going to have to address. 
Yeah, absolutely. And it seems as though um, uh, all of the talk about the genocide or oppression, exploitation of the Uyghur people in uh, China, uh, certainly uh, President Biden is using that to push the Europeans uh, to take a much stronger stand, to stand with the United States on China. But as you say, some of those countries are a bit hesitant. Now, I wonder your take about uh, what I mentioned in, in the intro, something that took place at the G7, where is um, the challenge to China's Belt and Road Initiative, which is this global infrastructure development project in 70 countries, that the G7 is now talking about launching this Build Back Better World Initiative to fund infrastructural developments in the global south. So there, there seems to be this competition, in a way, who will be in some ways, the new colonial masters of the global south, or certainly uh, which power will have tremendous uh, sway economically and perhaps in other ways of countries in the global south. Will it be China or will it be the United States and its Western allies? And as you know, Dr. Horn, practically all over Africa, in the Caribbean region, et cetera, China has been there for years, um, um, putting in uh, building roads, um, making huge loans that some people are, are critical of, saying some of these countries in the global south can't really afford to repay these loans. So there seems to be a battle also about who will now be the, what some people say, the preeminent kind of new colonial power in terms of um, economics, et cetera, in the global south. Your, your thoughts about this competition now between the Belt and Road Initiative and this Build Back Better World Initiative, Dr. Horn? Well, it's clear to me, at least, that the North Atlantic powers are disadvantaged in the developing world in this competition with China. If you look at Africa, for example, the European powers, the North Atlantic powers, have been in Africa for centuries, plundering and pillaging willy-nilly, uh, looting Africa of human capital, including the sons and daughters of Africa, such as uh, our ancestors, uh, to cite one example amongst many. And then there's the ludicrous nature of this so-called Build Back Better World, B3W as it's called, whereas once again, the North Atlantic powers plan to borrow from China in order to compete with China. Uh, they just better hope that China doesn't turn off the spigot. And then there's the further spectacle. Just in the last few weeks, you saw Foreign Minister Heiko Maas of Germany apologize for the first genocide of the 20th century against the Herero and Nama people of what is now Namibia, then German Southwest Africa, and then offering pennies and reparations because, of course, Berlin is concerned that if Namibia gets reparations, then what is now Tanzania will ask for something similar, Togo, Cameroon. And Germany is not even a major power, or has not been a major power uh, in Africa. So rather than these rumors, dreams, and promises about competing with, Africa, competing with China to build infrastructure in Africa in the developing world, I would urge and encourage the North Atlantic powers to pay back in reparations and compensation for the looting and plundering and pillaging that they've committed over decades, if not centuries. Right. And and then looking uh, uh, again, the, the trade deals, by the way, the EU is Russia's largest trading partner, accounting for 52 
2.3% of all foreign Russian trade in 2008 and 75% of foreign direct investment stocks in Russia also came from the EU. And altogether, um, Russia is EU's fifth largest trading partner, representing 4.8% of the EU's total trade in goods with the world in 2020. So I'm sure they are anxiously watching this meeting that's going on even as we are on the air, Dr. Horn, between um, Biden and, uh, and Putin. And then, of course, there, as you mentioned, there is this Nord Stream, the system of offshore natural gas pipelines in Europe running under the Baltic Sea from Russia to Germany. But Dr. Horn, what seems to be less of a focus, perhaps and maybe it's just media coverage, but in previous um, summits or conversations between Russia, China, or even the G7, nuclear power and nuclear weapons, nuclear proliferation was high on the agenda. It seems to be less so now and more concerned about cybersecurity. Do you think there is some truth to that? Dr. Horn. Well, I think that cybersecurity is a concern because cybersecurity can manifest itself on a weekly, if not a daily basis, with Washington pointing the finger of accusation at Moscow. With regard to nuclear weapons, uh, we can only hope that they will never become a live issue, that they will continue to be stockpiled. But once again, I think that other than the pipeline, Another major issue that needs to be focused on in the economic realm with regard to this whirlwind series of meetings in Europe is the decision by Boeing of the United States and Airbus of Western Europe to bury the hatchet, so to speak, to try to put aside their mutual grievances, because as they look over their shoulder nervously, they see that COMAC, which is a competitor to both Boeing and Airbus, and of course headquartered in China, is gaining steadily. And I think that this points to the basic economics and population figures that we need to consider. That is to say, if you add up the U.S. population of 330 million and add quite generously an EU population of 450 million, that's only about half of China's population, which means that by locking down its own internal market, China already controls uh, 20 to 25 percent of world population and can build a structure on that world, uh, on that population that can then be used as a lever to challenge the United States and the European Union and markets all over the world. So basically, the numbers don't add up for Washington and Brussels, which is one of the reasons why in this meeting today with President Putin, Mr. Biden will be seeking to woo Mr. Putin to this anti-China coalition, but I think that is basically a fool's errand. Yeah, and just finally, uh, Dr. Horn, I mean, one has to wonder or want to be a fly on the wall for this particular discussion. I mean, um, going on now between Biden and Putin, um, Biden who had called Putin a killer, an unrepentant autocrat, Putin saying, well, it takes one to know one. (laughs) Um, And now Biden um, in Europe saying that Putin is a a worthy adversary. But one has to, to wonder how much... 
of a lecture um, Biden might get or how concerned he is given uh, the human rights violations going on in the United States that all the world has seen in terms of uh, the police killings of, of black people, the mass incarceration, uh, the level of, of poverty, you know, the uptick in the um, income uh, divide. And, you know, whether part of the consideration of not having this joint uh, press conference afterwards is not only concerned about any gaffes that President Biden uh, may make, but also any swipes that uh, Putin might make in terms of what's happening in the United States, including um, the rise of these kind of right-wing militias and, and um, uh, Trump running around saying that he'll be back because Biden is not really the president. And how much can not only Russia, but the countries of the EU, the G7, uh, count on, um, you know, a, a Biden approach to foreign policy, considering given the specter of all of that in the background? Just some final thoughts from you, Dr. Horn. Well, with regard to your last point, it's clear that the EU powers, particularly France and Germany, are hedging. That is to say that like many in this country, they anticipate a Republican resurgence at the polls by means mostly foul in November 2022, and perhaps a return to the White House by Mr. Trump himself in November 2024. So any deals that they worked out with Mr. Biden, like the erstwhile Iranian nuclear deal that Mr. Trump tried to scuttle, will go up in smoke. So why should they ink deals with Mr. Biden when he may only be, as the Italians might say, an intermezzo, an interlude between two bookends of Trumpism. And then with regard to your former point, uh, it's clear from the NBC interview that Mr. Putin provided uh, that uh, he has Black Lives Matter on his mind. He expressed admiration uh, for Black Lives Matter, expressed concern about what's happening to black Americans, which I have to say I was quite happy to hear. And keep in mind that after the George Floyd killing in May 2020, that the African Union nations wanted to launch a human rights investigation of the United States focused on police terror. The United States had to expend a lot of political capital to prevent that from happening. But I think that issue can return, and that's part of the leverage that Moscow has in this mano-a-mano uh, mano confrontation with Mr. Biden that's unfolding as we speak in Geneva, Switzerland. Well, Dr. Horn, thank you so much for that. And hopefully we'll be continuing this conversation uh, with you. Our weekly roundtable is this Friday. We hope you'll be able to join us again. Dr. Gerald Horn, thank you for taking the time to be with us. Thank you. Thank you. All righty, we are going to take our station break now. And coming up, you won't want to miss Bishop William Barber of the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival. Also, Peggy O'Mara, the former editor of Mothering Magazine, on child tax credits. Hey, millions of families across the United States are going to start getting a check from Uncle Sam beginning July 13th. Find out if you are eligible, how much you expect to get, and the wider implications. We are also going to have our weekly Earth Minute. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Until the philosophy which old one race superior and another 
inferior is finally and permanently discredited and abandoned everywhere is war and the late great Bob Marley's war. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. Check out our website at sojourradio.org. And if you're a member of Facebook, you can like and friend us on Facebook. Our handle on Instagram and Twitter at So True Radio. We're also nationwide and worldwide on SoundCloud. And today we'd like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in Cleveland, Ohio, and internationally to our SoundCloud listeners in the past. Palestinian territories. Uh, this is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth, and we are now going to go to our weekly Earth Minute. Over the weekend, seven of the world's wealthiest nations, known as the G7 countries, met in Cornwall for their annual summit to discuss a new climate change plan. While leaders agreed to end worldwide investments in coal and promised to help developing nations with the rising costs of climate change, they failed to make any concrete plans to reduce emissions. Climate activists, however, are calling for more than just a transition to cleaner energy sources. According to the executive director of Greenpeace UK, without agreeing to end all new fossil fuel projects, something that must be delivered this year if we are to limit dangerous rises in global temperature, this plan falls very short. The need to tackle climate change requires systemic change instead of false solutions that will only worsen our ecological and economic crises. For the Earth Minute and the Sojourner Truth Show, this is Teresa Church from Global Justice Ecology Project. And this is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. Now, some very good news for those of you who have children 17 years and younger out there beginning on July 17th. Uh, you uh, can receive a child tax credit in the form of a check, a monthly check for the until the end of the year. And uh, we're going to be discussing all of this in the next segment. Let's go now to a clip from CBSN on this child tax credit. The IRS will begin sending out a portion of the new child tax credit on July 15th. This year, there are two big changes. The credit has been increased for those families who qualify, and the IRS is also delivering a portion of the payments in advance. The new payments are part of the Biden administration's effort to combat child poverty across the country. Joining us now is Aaron Lorenzo, a tax reporter for Politico. Glad to have you with us, Aaron. Great to see you. What does this increased child tax credit and receiving a portion of it earlier do for families receiving it? And what does it do for the economy? It's meant to help people who've been struggling in this economy for more than a year now. A lot of people have been out of work and remain out of work. Uh, the credit is more widely available for the next year. It's um, going to be delivered over six months. Uh, half of it will be delivered over six months, so it puts more money in people's pockets sooner than usual. And that's really meant to just help households have some extra spending money uh, over the balance of this year. 
And so this increased child tax credit is in place for a year, Aaron. Do you expect once people start receiving it that there might be a push to make it permanent? Or do you think as we move past the pandemic uh, that things will revert back? Well, there's already a push to make this permanent. Um, it hasn't uh, hasn't happened legislatively, legislatively yet, but there are certainly lawmakers who think that this should be extended beyond the uh, this tax year only, there's uh, good economic reasons, they'll tell you, uh, not the least of which is putting a huge dent in child poverty in America. Some estimate that uh, expanding the credit of this magnitude over a longer haul than just one year uh, puts a 40 percent, uh, reduces child poverty by 40 percent in America, and that's um, a sizable uh, difference. difference. All righty. So I'd like now to uh, welcome our guests, but also to just let you know that the President Biden, the Biden administration, Biden-Harris administration, they have announced that June 21st will be Child Tax Credit Awareness Day, and they've released guidance on all of this. The, um, the IRS, they have set up a special portal for people who generally don't file uh, taxes simply because their incomes are too low. The other thing to know about the child tax credit is that um, you're, if you are on other benefits, you won't be penalized. In other words, other benefits will not be cut uh, to make up for the money you're getting in the child tax credit. And again, that is $250 a month per child if for children between six years old and 17 years old, and for children who are under six years old, that's $300 a month. I mean, it's not a lot of money, but it, it really makes a big difference for a lot of families. And here, I'd like to welcome a supporter of the child tax credits. Welcome back to Sojourner Truth, Peggy O'Mara, an independent journalist who publishes her writing on the medium and other outlets. She was the editor and publisher of Mothering Magazine for over 30 years. Her books include Having a Baby Naturally, Natural Family Living, The Way Back Home, and A Quiet Place. Peggy O'Mara, she has conducted uh, workshops in several uh, places with La Leche Lead, uh, The Bioneers, uh, Esalon, and, and other places. She is the recipient of the La Leche League International 2001 Alumni Association Award, the International Peace Prayer Day uh, 2002 Women of Peace Award, the National Vaccine Information Center 2009 Courage in Journalism Award, the Holistic Moms Network, the 2013 Lifetime Achievement Award, and five Maggie Awards for Public Service Journalism from the Western Publishing Association. She is the mother of four, grandmother of three. She's also now become active with the Care Income Now campaign as well as election action for caregivers. Peggy O'Mara, welcome back. Thank you. Great to be here, Margaret. We've got to condense that introduction so we can talk more. <laughs> right, right, right. Good for people to know uh, all about you. Um, now, Peggy O'Mara, uh, your thoughts on uh, the child tax credit. Many of us feel that this is indeed a breakthrough because the United States is way behind um, so many of the developed countries in offering a child um, you know, benefit to parents that's also not uh, means tested. So your thoughts about the significance of this? 
Yeah, I think it's like a big toe in the door for uh, finally benefits for children and for families. As you know, the U.S. ranks second to last among the developed countries in benefits for children. So it really is some progress. And there are groups now calling, well, 41 senators are calling for the child tax credit to be made permanent. Uh, Representative DeLauro has introduced, reintroduced the American Family Act uh, to make it permanent. And there's a lot of um, advocacy groups also um, wanting to make it permanent and wanting to create a child benefit going forward that will be applied to all children. Um, so do you think, do you want me to talk about how people can access this now? Absolutely. Okay, so the child tax credit has been around since 1997. It was originally created for uh, middle class and upper middle income families. But this child tax credit is unique because it applies to all families because it's refundable. And what refundable means is that whether or not you made any income at all, whether you were unemployed, you didn't claim anything, you still can get this tax credit. Now, the way to get that, if you have already, if you have, if you are a filer and you've already filed for 2020, and if the IRS has already processed that tax return, they will use that information and automatically send you a payment. If, you, if they haven't processed your 2020 return, they'll use your 2019 return. You can, there will be a portal also opening up for filers later this month in June where you can update your dependents or other information. If you did not file in 2019 or 2020, the IRS will use the information you provided to the economic impact non-filing portal to get the stimulus payments. Now, if you didn't do any of that, which is fine. There is also a non-filing portal that opened today that you can use to apply for the child tax credit. Oh, it opened yesterday, I'm sorry. So it opened yesterday and we're hearing today that it's hard to use, it's only in English, it cannot be used on mobile phone, which is not good for many, many folks who don't have computers and don't even have broadband in their house. So the IRS has said that they'll work on that and they're trying to make that easier. Um, there's also places you can get Free tax assistance. Um, there's the volunteer income tax assistance of the IRS, which is for people who make less than 57000 a year, who are disabled or not native English speakers. And that number is 800-906-9887. 800-906-9887. And um, those resources are going to be on the website, on your website. I sent those into you guys and so they're going to be online later um what else do you also there it's available okay. to um undocumented folks so if someone has an ipin number they can receive the child tax credit if their child lives with them at least half of the year and has a social security number uh as you mentioned before also the white house has put up a page with information on it with links to the non-filing portal if you just search for the child tax credit slash white house this document will come up, but again, the link to it will be on your page uh, with those resources. Uh, what, else do, what else should we talk about about that, Mark? Right. Well, I think, Peggy, what we'll need to do is to, I want to do something much more in-depth on the child tax credit with you and others, because we are going to have to leave it there. The Reverend William Barber, Bishop Barber, is waiting uh, to speak with us, and they've got a major initiative uh, coming yeah, up. But 
Yeah, we, we do. And if you are there, there's a push now also for the money to go to primary caregivers. So we'll talk about that, all of that, and much more very soon. Peggy O'Mara, thank you so very much for joining us. Thanks, Margaret. Thanks, Margaret. All righty. And now I'd like to uh, go to the Poor People's Campaign, the National Call for Moral Revival, a growing movement fusing together what they refer to as the pillars of evil, racism, poverty, the war economy, environmental devastation, and the nation's distorted moral narrative. Thus far, this campaign has managed to put ending poverty onto the national agenda, national debate in a way not seen since the civil rights era. And uh, now the Poor People's Campaign, working with Congresswoman Barbara Lee and the Progressive Caucus, supported the introduction into Congress of a resolution entitled The Third Reconstruction, fully addressing poverty and low wages from the bottom up. Additionally, uh, there have been a few actions uh, targeting Senator Manchin. We'll find out why. And now the Poor People's Campaign, they're preparing for a major virtual march on Washington, D.C. on June 21st. So we're delighted to welcome back to Sojourner Truth, a joint coordinator of the Poor People's Campaign and the architect of the moral movement, which began with weekly Moral Monday protests in North Carolina General Assembly in 2013. Uh, we'd like to welcome back to Sojourner Truth, the Reverend Dr. William Joseph Barber. Reverend Barbara, delighted to have you on the show. You know I'm glad to be here, Margaret. And listen, y'all, this is Margaret's fault. Because when we came out, <laughs> I forget that mass meeting, and you came up to me and said, you've been waiting all these years, and i never forget that conversation. And we took it seriously. But indeed, the campaign is um, growing 40 Seven state coordinating committees now, about hundreds of thousands of people engaged, and we've heard that the, this is the first time in in really history that there has been a major piece of uh, legislation where the legislation is following the vision of the movement uh, uh, around this third reconstruction. It's a and and that uh, poor and low wealth people put it together with their allies as well as the budget. Uh, the Mall Poverty Justice Action Budget. And, you know, Margaret, here's the bottom line. And we, we've got a big day coming up on June 21st. We're asking all your listeners to tune in. It's the Mass Poor People's Low-Wage Workers Assembly Mall March on Washington virtually. But we're launching 365 days of organizing and mobilizing to a Mass Poor People Low-Wage Assembly Mall March on Washington live in person next June because we have to have a third reconstruction and a mass movement. But we have some economists that are going to be um, joining us on virtually. And you can go to poorpeoplescampaign.org and get the live stream link or either repairs or the breach. And they have said this there is no such thing in this country as scarcity when it comes to ending poverty. There's a resource. There's no such thing as scarcity of solutions. There's only the scarcity of social consciousness, political will, and a moral movement. And we've declared that the last thing, it ends now. We will have the kind of movement and social consciousness that will force this serious engagement 
with addressing um, poverty. And what it says is third reconstruction, an agenda to fully address poverty from, and low wages from the bottom up. That's the only way it can be done. It's, it's a vision of the movement into legislation, but the vision of the movement, building the narrative, changing the narrative, and building power, that's our work to do. And we intend to do it with everything we have in the legislative halls, in the uh, um, um, courtrooms, in the ballot, at the ballot box, and even if it takes nonviolent civil disobedience to drive this narrative, we cannot, and you said it so many times so well, uh, we cannot accept a country where 140 million people are poor and no wealth, the level of poverty is greater in America than in other countries all around the world, and it doesn't have to be many, it doesn't have to be. And over 50% of our children, our children are living in poverty. And during the pandemic, billionaires made almost $2 trillion extra dollars while 8 million more people fell into poverty and growing. We, we can't settle for that market. Absolutely. And, you know, um, Reverend Barber, you recalled um, when we met in Los Angeles, and actually what I said is some of us have been waiting 40 years for this movement. So very true. Um, because what the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival, has managed thus far, I haven't really seen since the movements that I was trained in, the civil rights movement, the welfare rights uh, movement, and putting poverty kind of front and center, I mean, you even have uh, President Biden now talking about poverty and about the the Jubilee platform put out by the Poor People's Campaign, Nancy Pelosi and others saying that this is a, a guide uh, for what uh, they need to be doing. But um, Reverend Barber, you, this resolution, uh, the title includes the third reconstruction. Why that title? A lot of people are wondering what, what that is and the connection um, you talk, you've talked about the first reconstruction and the lead to the third reconstruction. So why are you calling this the third reconstruction? Why do you think a third reconstruction is needed now? Well, first of all, we've had two in America, and both of them were assassinated and undermined. First reconstruction after slavery, poor and low wealth black and white people came together with their moral allies, rewrote constitutions, uh, all across the South, brought the 14th Amendment, the fifth, uh, Equal Protection of the Law, the 15th Amendment, protecting the right to vote. They began to focus on uh, everybody ought to be paid for their work, and after slavery was outlawed. And, 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 and then it was a, a violent backlash to that because of the coalition, the, what we call fusion coalition. Then in the 60s, as you referenced a moment ago, that was the second Reconstruction where we end up getting um, things like the Brown decision and Medicare and Medicaid and the Civil Rights Act of 64 and 65, and we were headed toward dealing with the issue of poverty, and that movement was assassinated and undermined, and the Southern strategy came into place to push the nation backwards, retrogression instead of progression. So we've never completed each reconstruction. Reconstruction, as the boys said, is when we people, first of all, it's the reconstruction in the minds of the people, the masses, where they decide to truly demand that what 
America has promised in its Constitution, equal, uh, 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 um, the establishment of justice and providing for the common welfare, is interpreted in the now moment and not misinterpreted by those who want to go backwards. And it is applied in this moment. So there's a reconstruction in the mind of the masses of the people. But it also means that there's a fundamental change in laws and policy because you recognize that the problems you're dealing with, like systemic racism, systemic poverty, ecological devastation, denial of health care, the war economy, those things are not uh, just personal, private decisions. They exist because of policy decisions. Poverty is a choice. Low wages is a political choice. And Reconstruction says we must change the choices we're making. We must change the choices we're making. And we can do that. So, you know, first of all, in the, in, the, in, the, in the third Reconstruction, the resolution says, if we are serious about, as the president said, lifting from the bottom and, 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 and bringing forth all people, then here are the kinds of re the reconstruction we must have. We must change how we measure poverty because the government poverty measurement is far too small. It, it leaves many people out. We must pay people a living wage. We must deal with guaranteed incomes and tax credits and earn tax credits. We must have universal health care. We must guarantee housing, affordable housing. We must have an infrastructure package, but it must go down to the communities that are hurt the worst and come up. We must guarantee people uh, in indig indigenous communities the full rights that they've been promised and denied, and, our, and our, um, uh, also our um, immigrant brothers and sisters. So in that vision, is 14 things, and, and Reconstruction says you have to do them all. You can't do a piece here and a piece there. And you have to break away from, you have to reconstruct how we come at policy from the first place. So you got to get away with, from Reaganomics and trickle down. And even neoliberalism that says if you lift the middle class up, no, you got to reconstruct the entire vision and decide that we're going to do public policy from the bottom up. That's the reconstruction we need now. We have to start with how do these policies impact the 140 million people. What are the things that's causing that level of poverty and low wealth? And we must reconstruct that. We must take the Constitution, comply it, take our deepest ball of that, and uh, 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 apply it, and reconstruct our entire approach. And if we do that, then that's when we have transformation. That's what happened in the 1800s. That's what happened in the 1960s. But we need one more reconstruction. And this time, we need to make sure it goes all the way and completes the things that should, many of them that should have been done years ago, Margaret, should have been done when you, as, when you say, y'all been waiting 40 years. This, it, shouldn't have, it, it shouldn't have had to wait 40 years to deal with this issue of poverty and low wealth. But since we, it, we did, now in this moment, we must reconstruct our attitude, our vision, and our policies to address what is broken in this society. Yes, indeed. And in, in just the next 30 seconds or so, I mean, a, a paying a, a living wage. And um, Dr. Barber, we are sure that you're talking not only about low-wage workers, but those of us who are unpaid caregivers, because we're workers as well. But Dr. Yeah. Barber, recently, yeah, oh yes, very good. Recently, uh, yeah, you were in West Virginia. Yeah, Absolutely. 
and, and, and you know who Virginia. was there, Marcus? Uh-huh. The hood yep. at the Hollis. We had white folk, miners. We had black folk from the hood, white folk from the Hollis, religious leaders, Sandy Joe Manson. Listen, you you cannot filibuster this society, lock down this society, block the For the People's Act, block the Voting Rights Act, block living wages. We are out of time. Today's show produced by me, that's Margaret Prescott. I'd like to thank the Sojourner Truth team, including assistant producer Romero Funes and today's audio engineer. I'd also like to thank the Global Justice Ecology Project. If you'd like a copy of today's show, you can contact the Pacifica Radio Archives at 1-800-735-0230 or go online to pacificaradioarchives.org. And remember to visit our website, sotrueradio.org, and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at So True Radio. Thank you for listening. This is your host, Margaret Prescott.